Welcome to Authors Matters, a podcast from the Authors Licensing and Collecting Society. I'm Caroline Sanderson, and I'm a writer and books journalist. In the season three finale of Authors Matters, we talk to Dr. Tom Chapfield. Tom is a British author and tech philosopher. His many fields of interest converge in a desire to help improve our experience and understanding of technology. For the past six years, Tom has been both an ALCS and CLA board member. In this episode, we're going to talk about his perspective on artificial intelligence, or AI for short. So Tom, welcome. Before we start grappling with the relationship between AI and creators, can we arrive at a simple workable definition of what AI is? <laughs> so I suspect that although it's, it seems to be a perennial subject in the headlines at the moment, it's actually probably been an integral part of our lives for a lot longer than we might realise. Yes, I mean, in, in a nutshell, when we talk about artificial intelligence, we're talking about using machines to perform tasks that through most of history have required human intelligence. So tasks that entail pattern recognition, data analysis, insight, analysis beyond the kind of automated. The interesting, I think, side note is that artificial intelligence as it exists now is incredibly powerful, but arguably it's neither artificial nor intelligent in anything approaching a human sense. So you could say that it might be better to call it um, regression analysis or applied statistics or machine learning or all these other very cumbersome phrases. What I mean is it's a very vivid phrase that actually is a little bit dangerous because it can make us think that what's going on is akin to our own intelligence when in fact it's achieving incredibly smart results by profoundly inhuman alien means. That's fascinating because that sort of overturns both words, artificial and intelligence, doesn't it? I love the idea of you being a tech philosopher. So what's your own background in terms of this issue? And for how long have you been thinking and writing about it? Yeah, so I'm a kind of interdisciplinary geek, really. I mean, my, my background, I've, I've written poetry and all kinds of different things since I was very young. I did a, a master's and a doctorate around literature with a bit of philosophy thrown in. But I was always a geek. I also did maths and coding and worked on video games and was kind of obsessed with the fact that all of this wonderful, beautiful, old stuff, culture, art, literature, the life of the mind, was being translated into a world where technology mediated all of it. So after I finished my doctorate, rather than kind of hanging out in academia, I went to sort of seek my fortune and to try and write about this sort of new world. I wrote a book about video games. I follow that up by kind of starting to take a strong interest in education, technology, human-machine interactions. I basically, you know, kind of followed my interests over a dozen more books around the fields like critical thinking, language and technology, the ethics of technology. And where I've ended up is in this lovely, slightly hand-waving place of writing and thinking and speaking and consulting around using technology well, as you said in your introduction, which for me means thinking more rigorously and deeply about how it can serve human needs and some of the dangers and pitfalls and delusions that we need to avoid if we want it to serve us rather than control or deceive us. 
clearly the question of AI is a global and multifaceted question, which we could consider from myriad perspectives. So let's consider it from the point of view of a working freelance writer such as myself. It feels fairly clear to me that AI is going to result in job losses, but to what extent might it make the work of a professional writer redundant? For example, in the light of chat GPT, which seems to be what most people are talking about in our field. I think some aspects of what AI systems can do, transformer systems, large language models, GPT is one of those, are really absolutely terrifying when it comes to the economics of writing. Because in a nutshell, what they do is produce statistically plausible responses to a prompt. They have eaten, ingested, been trained upon billions upon billions of words, in the case of large language models. And upon that basis, they can extrapolate astonishingly plausible and convincing and deep patterns in response. They don't know they're using language. They don't know anything. But they have an incredible capacity to be endlessly plausible and appropriate in response. So people who are being paid to write stuff, that is, you know, to a brief, that is conveying news, conveying information, synopsizing stuff, responding to straightforward prompts or prompts that don't require very high degrees of ingenuity, creativity, or um, kind of added value. All of this is very much under threat. And I would strongly advise any author or anyone who is interested to go online, sign up for free on one or more of these models and play with them. The reason you should do this is A, to learn how powerful they are, and B, to learn how limited they are in certain ways. One of the big problems we often talk about is called hallucination, and that means non-reality-based outputs. AIs produce endlessly plausible responses to inputs or prompts, but these often have only a very tenuous relationship with the real. They're very convincing, but they are not necessarily true or accurate. This is a really weird situation. When we look at the history of talking about tech and worrying about tech, you go back into science fiction, computers are logic machines. They are kind of implacable and that's dangerous and humans are all fuzzy and creative and lovely. And then we get to generative pre-trained transformers, large language models, these wonderful toys. And we see that they are astonishingly wildly serendipitous and unpredictable and in their own little data world. It's up to us to anchor them to reality. So the last little point I'd make is that in a funny way, writers actually possess a little bit of a superpower for an AI age, which is being really good with words. The prompts you use to get a result from AIs are incredibly important. If you want to hack an AI, you pretty much construct a short story in which it ends up doing something it's not supposed to do. You get it to pretend it's a baddie or pretend it's evil. And also, if you want to really kind of understand the limitations of their outputs and be highly sensitive to the points at which something's going a bit off the rails, being a close reader, being someone who works with words is a great skill. In the short term, the more that your work is susceptible to automation, is work for hire and so on, unfortunately, the more afraid you should be, but also the more you should go out there and acquaint yourself with this stuff, play with it. Last tip, ask it about yourself or a topic you're an expert in. 
And then you will suddenly notice it will say four plausible things and one mad, bonkers, implausible one all at the same time. So the more you learn the limits of these toys, these crazy data statistical engines, perhaps the better equipped you are to not think magically about them and, and plot your own place in the new world order. That's tremendous advice because I, I feel like we're quite good at putting our heads in the sand about this and just going, oh, maybe it'll be okay. But actually, if I go home now and have a play with chat GPT, for example, what you seem to be saying that to start with, it's kind of terrifying, but then also consoling in a way once you look at it and think you, you have a command of words which you earn money for. I think when I'm, yeah, when I'm wearing my little optimistic hat, that's definitely what I think you should do. Go and play, go and learn, go and expose yourself to systems, find what works, find what doesn't work. And also find where you are and aren't, you know, kind of most ripe for replacement. Um, but equally, I, I think the thing we can't afford is, is kind of magical thinking. To, to think magically about technology is to act as though it kind of inevitably and ineffably just does certain things and brings certain changes into the world and is oracular or implacable. When we talk about AI, one of the reasons that artificial intelligence is a bit of a dangerous word is it's not terribly descriptive of the reality of a kind of mega bunker underneath the ground somewhere in perhaps America full of lots and lots of supercooled servers crunching loads of data. You know, people say, our AI is going to take over the world. Well, I know what AIs want. What they want is for the bottom line of the companies that own them to get better. They want what the people who own them and operate them want. There's nothing mysterious or ineffable about this. It's very much about particular bits of kit run by particular people for particular reasons in particular places that have ingested particular data and so on and so on. So the more particular we can get, the more we can get away from the magical hand-waving and get into the specifics, like, well, what do we want from these systems? Nobody wakes up tomorrow and says, it's inevitable that everyone's out of business. There are decisions behind this. On, on some level, the decision not to pay people for their work or their time and their expertise is a decision. It, it's a human decision. It, it involves certain assumptions about what we want from work and people and writing and so on. So I think as quickly as possible, we need to get past gee whiz and into the, you know, the nitty bitty gritty stuff of regulation and debate. What do we want? Why do we want it? What do we deserve? What do we want a society to look like? So there's nothing inevitable about any of the stuff that gets banded around. So I want to come back to the political and social implications of all this in a moment. But um, I also understand that, and this is referring back to the work that AOCS does in protecting writers' rights, that copyright infringement is going on in lots of AI models. And this is in the form, I think, of the data used to train them. Can you tell us something about that and what we might do about that? Yeah, and I'm going to begin with the kind of caveat that it's complex. Oh. <laughs> so, but it's complicated in, in a good way um, in the sense that what it needs is some clarity. When you create a AI model, GPT stands for a generative pre-trained transformer. So you get a massive corpus of words 
Um, and then you use that to create the kind of underlying system, the foundational model that quote-unquote understands these things. And when a lot of these models are trained, to put it bluntly, the companies training them just just not being terribly careful about what they've thrown in. A lot of the stuff is not copyright. And copyright symbols, of course, just appear at the bottom of websites by default. So not the number counting the number of copyright symbols in there doesn't necessarily tell you anything. But I think it's very clear that a lot of the training sets have just been not very well documented. And there's a lot of anecdotal or, or less anecdotal and more hard evidence that for a, a bunch of different models, lots of stuff that is in copyright has been ingested, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And so we have this big question, well, were you allowed to do that? And what this comes back to is partly something that's called text and data mining, which is the right to literally, not literally, the right to metaphorically uh, mine a corpus to, to use it as data to train automated systems. But also for me, it comes down to a very basic uh, requirement around transparency. So for me, there is a simple proposition for engaging with this complicated situation, which is, if you want me to use a system and trust you, I need to know what it's been trained on. A lot of AI companies, very conveniently perhaps, don't have terribly good data hygiene and custodianship practices. They might say, well, we use this kind of off-the-shelf data set. It's got a whole bunch of stuff in it. That's not good enough. If I'm going to trust someone, if I'm going to trust the system, if I'm going to um, use something that is respectful of author's rights and that is, um, it's possible to understand and analyze the kind of biases and assumptions that may be baked into it and the worldview it embodies, I need to know what is in it. The EU are working right now on a lot of legislation around AI which touches on these fundamental ideas of transparency and truth and explainability and so on. There's a long way to go here, but this is the clarifying point I'd make I'd want to make. At the moment, neither we nor many of the people running big models know what went into them or are able to document it or be transparent about that. This needs to be changed so that there is transparency and trust can be earned and there needs to be agreements about how it is possible to get the permission of authors and creators um, to have AIs trained on their work or for them to withhold permission and for that withholding of permission to be meaningful and respected. Um, and I think there's going to be a, a lot of controversy and discussion and test legal cases and different regimes hashing this out. But for all of those fraught complexities, I, I do think there's a very clear case, to, to my mind, around the basics of transparency and the trust that flows from that, and the idea that actually it's just not okay to produce models that are utterly disrespectful of people's creativity, ownership of their work and rights. And the legal, the regulatory, the ethical situation needs to reflect that, and we're going to need much better standards of accountability, transparency, and data custodianship. In some ways, it's not as new as it claims to be. We've been having stuff shared online and scraped and used and copied and so on. The complexity here is that work is not being copied as such. That copying is not going on, and that's important to remember. It's not cutting and pasting. It is using work to learn about language and style and the world and so on.
So what's being produced is, so to speak, derivative or informed by or in the style of. And that begs a whole bunch of very complicated questions. So in a recent essay entitled, There's No Such Thing as Ethical AI, you note that the challenge it presents is primarily political and social rather than technological. And I think you've just sort of started to explain why that is. So question is, are politicians doing enough? And is this something we should all be playing our part in raising and making sure that they do do more? It's very tough for politicians to move as fast as technology. And I think tech companies who have a lot of uh, lobbyists and money, of course, have immemorially played the game of shifting the landscape very rapidly in their favour, then declaring that to be the way the world is, and then fighting rearguard actions. Not all tech companies, of course. But actually, I do think that we should give some credit to politicians for consulting, for listening, for speaking about technology in terms of questions rather than certainty. So if you go back 10 or 15 years, I think there was much more of a tendency to go kind of innovation good, innovation will save us money, we want to reduce barriers to innovation, let's let lots of entrepreneurs do stuff, that's all good, isn't it? And I think now, although some of it may be misguided, there's much more anxiety around technology. Some of the anxiety, I think, is is misplaced. Some of the anxiety is cultivated by tech companies because, of course, if what you're doing is creating a product so powerful that it might end the world, then A, your company obviously is worth lots of money, and B, no one's going to sweat the small stuff. They're going to say, my goodness me, well, we better you know, give you loads of attention. So I, I'm not completely anti-politicians on this. I think, interestingly, legislators, legislation and so on, it's slow, but it's powerful. And some of the debates and interrogations that are going on, I think, are of good quality in the calls for evidence. What I would say to our, our lovely listeners and others is it is important to to make your voice heard, to to speak out if you feel that your view is not being respected, that your concerns are not featuring in these debates. The question of what technology should do, what it shouldn't do, what values it should respect has become a very live question. It's no longer a, as I said, a kind of innovation good thing. So in some ways, this is a a legislative moment when we might get, if we're lucky, some good and respectful laws around copyright and creativity, the idea that people should be able to deploy their talents, participate in the success of their work, have control over it in the world, and not be, so to speak, ripped off and sidelined by systems that are fundamentally parasitic upon their creativity. It is not true of all systems, but certainly can be true. You know, this is an idea that I think has a kind of intuitive and unignorable power. So it's a very interesting moment, to say the least. So assuming that we get the legislation that we need, are there some positives for creators to look forward to? I mean, there's loads of positives. And one is just playing with this stuff. Creators have always immemorially taken stuff and played with it. And let us remember, art, communication, 
value begins and ends with humans. The machines don't care. It begins with human words and it ends with a human audience. Ultimately, communication is still an act that takes place exclusively between humans when it comes to meanings and purposes and values. Having cool new stuff to play with is great. Empowering people to remix their own and others' work with permission, to, to play, to make, to, to think, to have assistance, to be elevated, this is all absolutely tremendous. And that's before we get onto the gains potentially for things like accessibility and outreach. You know, I, I work around textbooks, I work in education. It is a wonderful thing, it seems to me, that I can, using AI, far more easily potentially create audio versions of what I'm doing, create accessible versions of what I'm doing, create it in different languages, synthesize it, have help synopsizing large things for people with lower reading ages. But all of this has to be done in a manner that is respectful of the human skills and intellects and creativity and values that underpin it and that will continue to underpin its significance in the world. This is a really important point. Writing and creating is an act of connection between humans. And all of the value it has, including the economic value, is ultimately predicated upon certain human needs. As far as I know, AIs are not going to start buying copies of my books because they think I'm marvellous. So we hollow out this stuff at our peril. We disembowel our society's creative and intellectual and discursive capacities at our peril. The point of writing is not simply to produce X number of words or tokens and then sell them. It is an act of communication between people, between times and between places. So we as creatives need to double down on this stuff and assert that we're going to use these tools. We want to collaborate with and through them. Tremendous riches are at our fingertips. Uh, but we need to be very bold, I think, in advocating for the deep significance of talent and truth and transparency and human communication now more than ever. I can't think of a better note on which to wrap up season three of Authors Matters. Tom Chatfield, thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed. We aim to reflect the views of a wide variety of authors on our podcast, but their views are, of course, their own. Check out more episodes of Authors Matters wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening and please join us next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.